This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Kim Strassel joins us now. She is the author of The Intimidation Game How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. And she is also a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, where she's a member of the journal's editorial board. Kim, great to have you. Hi, Buck. So nice to be here. Uh, Kim, I'm in I'm in flu recovery still, so I'm going to need you to uh, to bring everybody up to speed a little bit on a couple of things I haven't even been able to touch on much this week. First off, <laughs> from what we know, yeah, I've, I've been out for the last few days. Uh, I'm so from what sorry. we know about the uh, oh, thank you, um, uh, the travel the travel ban, even called by some in the media a Muslim ban. What turned out to be true, and what turned out to be hyperbole with that, and where where do you see that that whole thing going? of all, it's hyperbole to suggest that this is unprecedented uh, or in any way unconstitutional. Uh, President Obama, back in a couple of years ago, did his own six-month uh, ban, as it were, or at least a severe slowdown of refugees from Iraq following some concerns about a potential terrorist plot that was uncovered down in Kentucky. So this has happened before. You didn't see protests. Uh, I think it's inarguably constitutional, and when you talk to most serious scholars, they would agree. The President of the United States, under the Constitution, has a very wide latitude to take measures in the name of national security, and there seems to be very little question uh, that Trump was within his bounds to do this. Uh, What I think is probably fair is that this was not necessarily planned as well as it could have been. Not enough interagency discussion, not enough organization before it came out. So it was a bit of a a mess up, and it looked pretty riotous for a couple of days, which did not help. Um, And I think the other thing worth noting is that President Trump was absolutely within his rights to fire the acting attorney general, who had no real grounds for refusing to defend this in court. Um, She, The only time that she would have been able to have made that case is if she could very clearly have demonstrated it was unconstitutional. Even she did not suggest that was the case. She suggested she was doing this because she thought it was immoral and unjust, and those are not valid reasons for an attorney general to dismiss the president of the United States. Yeah, no, she definitely had to go, although I do think that she's going to get some sweet speaking gigs out of standing up against the Trump monster. That's that's That was a part of the calculation I would be willing to wager. Yeah, um, we at the editorial you, page said it was a, a a perfect audition to be the the new attorney general nominee for the next Democratic administration. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and, and and in the meantime, you know, the book advance gets bigger when you stand up to Trump. Um, so you got Chuck Schumer's first fail. Uh, you, there's a piece up on the Wall Street Journal. 
The new minority leader is likely to go zero for eight in opposing nominees. This is your piece, Kim. Uh, what's what can we say about Schumer and his his attempts to derail the Trump nomination process so far? Doesn't look like it's going well for him. No, and first of all, that is likely to be the case. There has been some last-minute doubt here recently about Betsy DeVos, who's been nominated for the Education Department. We've had two Republican senators who, while uh, DeVos got through committee, both Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska were got to by their unions, uh, who put a lot of pressure on them, and they are now saying they will vote against her on the floor That still gives Republicans 50 votes, and with Mike Pence, 51, and she would get confirmed. So if there are no further defections, she'll go through. And she seems to be the only one where there is a question at the moment. Rex Tillerson was just confirmed and sworn in. You witnessed Democrats and a whole bunch of temper tantrums this week, refusing to show up boycotting hearings and votes. Republicans chose to play hardball back, for instance, Orrin Hatch of the Senate Finance Committee, Uh, simply suspended the rules so that he didn't need a quorum, so that he could vote through Tom Price and also Steve Mnuchin for Treasury. So they're not going to just stand by and and wait for the Democrats to do this. And in general, Chuck Schumer has been unable uh, to move a single Republican to come over to his side or sow any doubts on any Trump nominees. And this will be a, a modern record set here, Buck, because it's very unusual for a president to get their whole team. I do think that Chuck Schumer has at least tried to, if not lay the groundwork for uh, derailing the uh, Gorsuch nomination, that he's definitely on record. I saw his tweets the night of the announcement saying things that, uh, well, I'm not sure that he could be, you know, an impartial justice and just just taking some some shots at the record of, of Trump's now Supreme Court nominee. Uh, what what are your expectations for what the Democrats in the Senate are going to try to pull off and, and try to do to somebody who got a lot of Democrat votes back in 2006 from the Senate and is, you know, Har- what, Harvard Law School is not good enough? Being an appeals court judge not good enough? Well, what are they going to do? I feel profoundly sorry for a number of Senate Democrats who are about to be have their heads put in a vice grip because what you see happening here is a public will uh, to see uh, this president be allowed to put his nominees on the court. Uh, and Neil Gorsuch, an incredibly gifted uh, judicial uh, member of the court, there is no reason, I mean, there is no person in the country who could look at you with a straight face and say that he is not qualified to take his position on the Supreme Court. And that will be the view of many Americans. Yet at the very same time, you have a progressive activist base that just in the past two weeks has ramped itself up and is making clear that any Democrat who does not filibuster this nominee uh, is at risk of a primary. So poor guys like Joe Manchin of West Virginia or Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, these are states that Trump won and won big. They are up for re-election in two years' time, and they are between the ultimate rock and a hard space. And you think he's going to get through? He will get through one way or another. And I think it's interesting listening to Mitch McConnell uh, make that statement. You saw the president come out yesterday and egg McConnell on to simply blow up the filibuster. And that was not necessarily helpful. And here's why. Because Mitch McConnell knows that he's got some members of his own 
uh, party who are reluctant to blow up the filibuster. He needs them to do so. He needs 50 votes to allow him to change the rules and blow up the filibuster. His best shot uh, is letting this process play out, letting the Democrats hang themselves, as it were, um, either getting enough to, in fact, allow a vote to happen up and down on Gorsuch, or if they simply obstruct, 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 then he's going to have a lot more credibility going to members of his party and getting them to stay behind him to blow up the filibuster than he will if he just preemptively announces it on his own right now. So looks like it's going to be quite a fight. We can expect that much for sure. I also want to ask you, Kim, about this refugee dispute, speaking of, of fights, between Trump and the, what is it, the Australian PM? Malcolm I woke up Turnbull, to this, this morning. Yeah. What 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 is give her, I haven't even mentioned this yet so to tell everybody the background and then let's let's talk about what's happening here. Well, we don't know how much of this is true and it's important to note that these are simply reports that have clearly been leaked uh, and for clearly for some purpose. So we're not entirely sure the story, but the story is now is being reported by various news outlets is that in the call Donald Trump had with the Australian Prime Minister recently. The readout from the White House was that it had been very cordial and friendly. Uh, reporters are now suggesting that, in fact, it had been abrupt, a uh, somewhat ugly exchange in which Donald Trump uh, accused or rather said that the deal that Australia had recently sort of met in terms of uh, housing refugees on an island uh, was a bad deal that Trump didn't like it, uh, and uh, then he apparently bragged about his electoral results and hung up. Now, we don't know if any of this is the case. Um, again, it's being done through leaks, people who claim to be aware of how the conversation actually rolled. Um, the White House has not really uh, addressed this as so far as I know. So, But it's, uh, it's further suggestion that at least that first week, Mr. Trump maybe was speaking pretty aggressively to some other members and leaders on the phone. How would they know about this? I mean, you're, you're in the press. There's got to be what somebody who's in the very top circle of the trump administration who's going to pass this along or the australian pm's office is passing this along it just seems like some of the sourcing on some of these trump stories that get out there uh seems questionable to me because it is how would they know you know i i heard today for instance uh, all these stories that were reported that the other supreme court justice that was uh, i mean the other justice that was in the running for the supreme court hardiman there were all these reports that he'd been made to come to washington and that there's been this kind of uh, a very aggressive decision to simply leave him hanging until the moment at which he was not announced not true that is not what happened. He never came to D.C. He was told, uh, I believe, in person by the president. So there's all kinds of rumors and, and stuff floating out there. The only thing I could imagine in terms of this Australian story is that if it is true, perhaps leaked by the Australian prime minister's office with an eye to, to putting the new president on the defensive, especially if Donald Trump said something that the Australian prime minister didn't like. It just strikes me as yet again another possible moment where we see things we see things reported about about Donald Trump and about his administration, and to look at them skeptically is is not to be a trumper or to be somebody who refuses to grapple with the truth, but I think it's to just see what's happened in the last few months in terms of a lot of the 
reporting from from major papers, from major networks that has just been inaccurate or false. And to say, well, okay, let's let's wait till we get a little more. Is this is this different? Have you ever seen anything like this before? My friend Charles Cook over at National Review tweeted out a couple of days ago that it feels now like it's every hour. You know, and and we're not talking about with a with a, a news story that's wrong. And he's and I'm paraphrasing here. But he said we're not talking about bloggers. We're not talking about random Twitter eggs. This is the New York Times. This is NBC. This is major news outlets. It seems to be getting it wrong me, over and over. Always in the same direction against Trump. Sorry. Well, that's what you just said. Is what strikes me is it's the nature of the mistakes. It's not necessarily the volume. You could have turned at any point to. The Wall Street Journal on the inside page of the New York Times and people misspell names. They get numbers wrong. Mistakes happen in newspapers, although everyone should wish that they didn't. What's notable about all of these is that they all begin from the presumption that the Trump administration has done something wrong or evil or nasty or terrible. Uh, and by making those guesses or assumptions, just assuming the worst, uh, they end up getting the story wrong. And that ought to be a real warning lesson to everyone in the press. The Obviously, the the best example of that is, of course, the, the incorrect story about the Martin Luther King bust in the White House. A, a reporter stepped in. He didn't immediately have seen it, seen it, and his first thought was that Donald Trump, the, the quote-unquote racist, must have removed that bust from the White House. And, and those are the kind of faulty assumptions that are getting the press into the trouble they're getting into. Kim Strassel is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. She is also a Wall Street Journal editorial columnist. You can read her latest at wallstreetjournal.com. Kim, great to have you. Thank you so much for calling in. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Feel better. Thank you. Oh, wait, Kim, wait. Before you go, did you, did you hear the announcement yesterday? Oh, she's gone. Well, we lost. I should have told her because Kim is like one of the people that I want to come on the other show, too. So uh, I'll, I'll let her know later. Uh, team phones open 888-900-3393. Uh, definitely could use some backup today on the phone lines. So if you got a moment to call in, talk about anything we've hit today or whatever else you want to say, and we'll be back in a few minutes. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, uh, I saw the the news as I was out sick um, about what happened in Yemen. This uh, mission that. Uh, had ran into difficulties, and and most notably, we lost a, a chief special warfare operator, William Owens, a Navy SEAL. So there were over a dozen Al Qaeda uh, terrorists who were killed. Um, that's according to New York Post here, and 
this what's interesting to me about this from a policy perspective is that it's now coming out that President Obama uh, could have ordered this could have ordered this raid and, and it, it did involve uh, real Al Qaeda uh, affiliates and and members of Al Qaeda who are doing external plotting and and, and planning against uh, us and our allies around the world and he deferred and this is exactly what I think we would expect from this administration um, or sorry from the previous administration rather uh, so Donald Trump comes into office and he orders this raid and going after al-qaeda in you know the desert of Yemen is is going to be a, a risky business the moment that you uh, the moment that you are deploying US soldiers into that kind of uh, that kind of situation you have the possibilities both for losses on our side as as well as civilian casualties i see here that there are claims of uh 30 people including 10 women and children who were killed according to the media although i think the pentagon disputes that number um, but obama had delayed this and now we're being told and i'm sure this is coming from uh, senior officials who are either current or former senior officials who have a pro-Obama disposition. Um, now it's being told that uh, Obama delayed for operational reasons because they were waiting for a moonless night. Maybe. It seems to me much more likely that the Obama administration was sitting on this because what really defined Obama when it comes to foreign policy? Uh, what defined his approach to these sorts of uh, situations all over the world. I understand people are going to say, well, Buck, what about the bin Laden raid? There was a meticulous planning that went into that raid and months of preparation. Uh, one of the aspects of this that's not often talked about is that this, unlike other raids, the SEALs were able to build, they were able to use a full mock-up of the, of the house, of the facility. I mean, bin Laden was in there and they knew he was in there and they were able to do a tremendous amount of preparation, much more than they usually would be able to do in order to uh, get at him. And uh, but that so that's that's not an instance of oh, people refer to that as though Obama was the decider, you know, on the spot, making it happen, didn't want to delay. The reality is waited a long time. They waited a long time before that green light was actually given. And here with Trump, I think we see there'll be unfortunately more of these um, because I'm sure there's intelligence, there's actual intelligence that the current administration has in its hands that could have been acted on by the previous administration, but they figured, why take the risk? Why put ourselves in that position? Um, why decide that we're going to be you know, sticking our, our necks out when we could just leave this on for whoever comes after us. This is also something you're going to see in increasingly coming out in news stories with Afghanistan, um, with a number of places around the world. I think Afghanistan's the most prominent one or the one that's going to be the biggest issue where Obama just delayed and has left a, a tremendously difficult situation behind for his predecessor. Yeah, Bush, the Iraq War, there were things that were that did not go well. There were decisions that were made that were bad, and I don't have the time to get into those right this second, but you certainly know what they are. And yet, Bush did stabilize Iraq and handed over a stabilized Iraq to his predecessor, 
and did what he thought was necessary with the surge. Um, I'm sorry, not with his predecessor, with his uh, successor. Sorry. I still have the flu. Not the flu, but still recovering. Um, Bush did that because he thought it was the right thing to do. I think Obama made a lot of decisions on national security based upon what he felt was politically expedient. And that's that's people keep talking to me about what a dangerous commander in chief Trump is going to be. And I always kind of look at them and say, you know, we've just had eight years of Obama. And, and now we're going to get lectured about how Trump is going to run everything off the rails. I mean, I'm not saying that Trump isn't a little bit of a, a loose cannon diplomatically and otherwise. But and Obama is sitting around thinking about what does this look like for me and my administration, not what does this do to the security of the United States? I think that's a very dangerous perspective. All right, we got a lot more coming, team. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Emily Zanotti is with us now. Emily is the politics editor at Heat Street. Heatstreet.com is where you'll find her latest magnum opus. What's up, Emily? Not a whole lot. How are you feeling? Oh, man. Brutal, but thank you. I uh, appreciate the backup today. I, I was like, call in the Avengers. And so here you are, Zanotti. Because <laughs> um, I need some I help. It is, it is a... But people can, I'm past the like, now I'm going to be a baby and tell people about my illness. I'm past the throat sore and all that. But now I'm just like that, that like exhaustion where you just don't want to move really. Anyway, it's not, not fun. Like it's tough to do radio like when you're exhausted. every molecule of air is like hitting your face. Yeah, it's not the most amazing thing ever. Speaking of amazing things, uh, I did <laughs> not know how bad this how bad this protest against Milo was until I saw your, the heat street uh, write up you did on this. This was, this was bonkers. I mean, there, there were like lighting big things on fire and they yeah. broke into a building and they had people with shields, uh, getting shot with non-lethal bullets. I mean, like give some, give some color here. This is crazy. Yeah. So this was an all out riot. The university of California, Berkeley decided that they didn't want Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a, pretty controversial guy speaking on their campus and so in order to make sure people didn't exercise their free speech they just decided to burn their whole school down and between setting things on fire they fired rockets into the building where milo was speaking they sprayed a girl who was wearing a trump hat with i believe it was pepper spray they used a battering ram to get into the building in the first place and then decided to throw rocks and bricks. It was just an all-out melee for probably about two hours. Damn, I mean, it's crazy. I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the photos of this stuff. I mean, this is like, uh, yeah. it, it looks like photos of some of the anti-police riots that have happened over the last year, you know, out in Ferguson and Baltimore. I mean, this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's like fireballs. They took... It, one of those safety lights, like those portable floodlights, and knocked it over, set it on fire, and then they were using that to set trees on fire. I, I mean, obviously, they were totally calm and rationally opposing Milo's speech. This is insane. 
So, yeah, people should go to Heat Street and see. You've got some great photos and video there of what happened here. You know, we used yeah. to have, there were, there were dumb protests at Amherst, but usually it didn't involve mm-hmm. the, it only was when the Patriots would win or lose a big game that you had to avoid UMass down the street because things could get crazy over there. But stories for another day. Yeah. Boycott of Marvel over CEO's Trump donations pits social justice warriors against each other. Walk us through this one. This is on HeatStreet.com. Right. So Ike Perlmutter, who's the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, is a big-time Donald Trump donor. He's a huge Donald Trump supporter. He's part of Donald Trump's economic uh, advisory committee, I believe. And he and Steve Mnuchin have been involved in the Marvel Studios movies. But Marvel Studios has also produced this line of feminist kind of social justice warrior comic books where people save the world by finding girl superheroes, things like that. The social justice warriors want to boycott Marvel Entertainment because obviously they're siding with Donald Trump. But then they're worried that they're also going to hurt the social justice warriors who write the comic books. So it's very conflicted. If you go on the site and look at the story, they're back and forth and agonizing over whether they're going to have to ascribe to capitalism for once. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Seems like a... Wait, are you still there, Emily, or are you cut off? No, I'm still here. Oh, there we go. Okay, I, I couldn't I couldn't talk okay. for a second. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's tough to know when, when your SJW has to go to 100. Um, yeah. But tell me, tell me about stoner to stone thrower filmmaker Judd Apatow, this exchange supporting violent Berkeley protests. What happened here? So last night, as the Berkeley protests were sort of exploding in Southern California, a bunch of Hollywood celebrities, Sarah Silverman, Deborah Messing, and Judd Apatow, who makes all those great, really funny movies, decided to support the protesters who were basically setting fire to UC Berkeley. So he actually sent out a tweet that said something along the lines of, this is only the beginning, Trump supporters should watch out, you're basically next on the agenda, and quickly deleted it, but not before the internet found it, and basically said, I think you're threatening everybody who voted for or supported Donald Trump with being burned alive like the fires on the UC Berkeley campus. He tried... He tried to apologize, but it was way too late. Man, I mean, Judd Apatow, like, come on. Doesn't he make movies that are just like stoner giggle movies? Yeah, like Pineapple Express and Knocked Up. and I mean, these are just funny movies. Or they're supposed to be kind of escapist movies about stoners and kids. And, yeah, so suddenly he's very political. If you go on his Twitter feed, it's just an endless stream of stuff. Now, I'm just sad about this because usually I would take the opportunity to do a, a, a horrifically amazing Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation, but my voice is not up for it today. But we have the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, firing back at Trump after the prayer breakfast insult. What's, uh-oh, Trump v. Schwarzenegger? Yeah. This, this is like something that would yeah. have been from an action movie in the 90s. <laughs> or like a WWE special event or something. Uh, oh, absolutely. So yeah, so uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger took over The Apprentice once Donald Trump could no longer do it because he was running for president. And the ratings have basically tanked. Nobody's watching The Apprentice. Nobody cares. I'm not even sure when it's on. And Donald Trump took the national prayer breakfast speech that he gave this morning and used it to ask his audience to please pray for Arnold Schwarzenegger because those ratings are really terrible. Arnold Schwarzenegger wow. is not the kind of guy who just takes things sitting down. So he... 
filmed a quick video of himself saying that he'd love to switch places and the Americans could have Arnold Schwarzenegger as president and Donald Trump could go back to the apprentice. That's like that's some next level trolling when you're when you're trying to bring the almighty into it, which it seems like he did. He's at the prayer breakfast breakfast. and he's and he and he's trolling Schwarzenegger at the. Wow. I I guess they're not friends. There must be something there. There must be some sort of uh, a beef or I guess Trump's greatest success before he was president really was The Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, As far as I know. I mean, Schwarzenegger did support John Kasich. Oh, now it yeah. all makes sense. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Supported Kasich? Ooh. Yeah, so he was you know instrumental what? in helping Kasich get a foundation in California. So it kind of makes sense now. Yeah, I got to say, now now I'm now I'm actually feeling like Trump was well within his rights <laughs> to go after him on this one. <laughs> Supporting Kasich is just not, it's just not acceptable. It's just not. No. Um, tell me... Tell me about someone who's leaving the country finally over Donald Trump. That's a thing that's really happening now. It is. Well, they're not really sure where they're going. They're going to be taking several weeks staying in hostels, some place off on Earth. But these are the first two people, a Maryland couple, we've heard of that are actually leaving the country. They promised to leave the country if Donald Trump got elected, and they're packing their bags and selling them home and going to Central America because it's so much better than living in Donald Trump's America. I would love to see what the follow-up story on this is like before they realize. I'm also curious what country in Central America they're going to. I would guess Costa Rica, but um, I I, want to see how long they last before they're like, you know, we kind of miss like Chick-fil-A and 500 channels on, on TV and, you know, being able they to just have Amazon deliver anything you want yeah. within a day. They do say that they're kind of worried that they're losing their social security. So, I mean, they are going to miss the benefits of living here. Wait, so they if you leave the country, you give up your social security? I didn't know that. Apparently, they're saying that they don't want any money from the U.S. government. They're going to be actually making money, documenting their trip, blogging it, hopefully producing a book from this. And oh, okay. So that's why we know about these people. Abroad. This is this is a this right. is a thing. This is, they're making this mm-hmm. into a thing. Uh, yeah. All right. So there's so there's that. Um, what else do we have going on here? Election tampering. WikiLeaks now trying to subvert elections across the globe. Do tell. What's this all about? They say that they had a huge success subverting the U.S. elections, basically by printing some stuff right before election day. So WikiLeaks is now going to try their hand at elections in France, in India, and in the UK. And so this week, they have produced about 5,000 pages of documents on some of the French politicians who are running for the president spot over there. They're not exactly groundbreaking. At least one of the presidential candidates was hanging out with Hillary Clinton for a little while, but that doesn't really seem to phase the people in France. But they think that they can make a difference, so I guess we'll see. And I got Hillary Clinton here on HeatStreet.com. Desperate for cash, Hillary Clinton to write another memoir and paid speaking tour. She can't really be desperate for cash, can she? Or is she just always desperate for cash? She's just always desperate for cash. Well, her last memoir, her book with, uh, uh, not John Kasich, her book with Tim Kaine, 
only sold about 2,500 copies. So she's probably got to hit the bricks at this point. Wait, her last book sold 2,500 copies? That's yeah, terrible. Yeah, her last book. Yeah, the one that she wrote on the campaign trail. And people don't even know that this book exists. But there was a I book didn't know that it she wrote with Tim Kaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that she wrote with Tim Kaine that outlined their campaign strategy and their vision for America. And actually, most of the books were purchased by the Hillary Clinton campaign just to get it on the bestseller list one week. And then they never sold another book. It was pretty sad, actually. That. Well, I mean, she's, she's quote, written, I think, 14 books now, something like that. Is that right? Do you know how many something it is? Something like that, I mean, yeah. she obviously hasn't really, she hasn't really written any of them, but. No. Uh, she received $14 million for her memoir, Hard Choices. That's, in, that's just yeah. completely insane. Yeah, that's the single largest, up until now, the money that she's going to be getting for this book, it is, it is the single largest advance for a book in history. So she is making bank on them, but she still says she's desperate. Yeah, and I mean, I think Barack's going to get twenty million for his. I was seeing that, so that'll be the biggest advance, yeah. I, I believe, of all time, um, which is not surprising. This is, the, the left takes care of their own. I got to give them credit for that. Uh, but well, do we know what Hillary's speeches are going for now? By the way, because this will be very interesting to see how that shakes out. We haven't seen it. We have a request out to see if she's going to be able to sell any of these speeches. But prior to actually running for president, she was banking between 250000 and 330000 per speech, plus flying on private airlines financed by the people who book her speech. She requested the presidential suite. She had this great rider with all of these really fancy things on it. So she was living large as a person on the speaking circuit. Her husband, I think, commands somewhere around 200000 So these are not cheap speeches, and I think she's going to be making a pretty good buck and living a pretty I wonder, nice lifestyle. No, no pun intended there from Zanotti. And uh, I wonder <laughs> what the uh, w- whether we'll see a, a decline, because I can understand right after she runs and people think she's so close to winning um, that mm-hmm. she would have a, a sort of surge. But I bet the market will speak on this, and I don't think anyone's really going to care about Hillary Clinton in, in a year. I mean, I think she's going to be in the the hundred k speak speakers uh, circle, which is very different from the two hundred fifty and up. It might also be a really sad speech. I feel like the first couple of speeches are going to be just her crying on stage at the sadness of being beaten by Donald Trump, and then it's going to get really old, and nobody's going to want to pay for it anymore. All right, Emily Zanotti, political editor at Heat Street. Great to have you. Thank you so much for joining, and we'll have you back soon when Buck is uh, 100%. Sound good. Thanks, Emily. Take care. Uh, guys, we got a lot more. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Interesting. I see this now with a Hollywood reporter that uh, they're moving to sell more booze at movie theaters. I figured this would. This was only a matter of time. I've, I've heard from some people recently who have gone to these sort of high-end movie theaters where you can order food. They have them in New York City now. I don't know if they have them wherever you are listening. I haven't been to one yet, but you can order food. 
and they bring it to you and you are, um, you know, you just sit there and you make the order happen and you go from there. Um, I, I went to a movie theater, I remember in Thailand and it was like big comfy seats, sort of like airline seats, which was kind of cool. Um, but the problem that I see happening here with adding booze onto the menu at movie theaters is that now if you're somebody like me who doesn't particularly like it when people start talking and being loud and annoying during movies, I think it's much more likely that is going to happen. You're going to have people that get a little boozed up and they're going to start getting loud and getting particularly chatty and boisterous during the course of the film. And then there's just going to be uh, some issues that come out of that because people like me go, shh, I don't like hearing all the noise during the movie. Um, I don't like it when I go and I pay and I sit there and I have to hear somebody else's running commentary on the film. And so while I understand that movie, theater, movie theaters are in trouble in a lot of places, they're trying to up revenue, I think the way you up revenue is you have, you just, have, everyone has to like sign something when they go and they understand that the movie theater becomes a totalitarian environment, sort of like an airplane, in that there are rules, and even if you don't like the rules and the rules seem arbitrary, they will be enforced with Stasi-like zeal, and one of those rules is no talking during the movie. Everyone gets one warning, right? Everyone gets one warning to, from looking at their phone and one warning for talking. I think if they did that and they enforced quiet in the theater in a real way, they might get me back. But in, as long as people are going to talk and be annoying and look at their phones and, and ruin the experience, uh, booze or no booze, it's not going to be happening for me anytime soon. Team, uh, light up those lines, 888-900-3393, hour three, coming up. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.